evidence and answers. The scriptures are filled with history, from artifacts to prominent figures, to places, cultures, and so much more. So what do the ancient ruins tell us about the Bible? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat is speaking with one of the leading biblical archaeologists, Joseph Holden, as they discuss archaeology and the Bible. If you're unable to hear any of this broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our host, Pat Zucran, with part two. But we could go on and on. There are numerous figures such as King Jehu and the King Hoshea, and we have King Haziel in 2 Kings 8. We have Gamaria in Jeremiah 29.3, Gedaliah in 2 Kings 25. We can just go on and on about these figures that lived in history in the Old Testament. Yeah, you know, and a lot of those figures that you mentioned are minor figures, you know. Yes. And when we have discoveries about minor figures in, you know, the Old Testament, and we found them to be accurate, and, and these are, you know, lesser players, well, how much more confidence can we have then when it comes to the major players like King David, King Solomon, King Saul, and figures like that. Very well said, Patrick. I mean, when we have finds that King Nebuchadnezzar actually lived in the Babylonian Chronicles, which is a slam dunk, all these minor players give us greater reason to believe that the larger players of Scripture were real historical figures. The coinage tells us this is so the little receipts that we might find from these smaller figures give us good indication that the major figures that they served were actual people of history mentioned in scripture it's just an amazing cachet of people we know that really existed from the bible now you know one of the most disputed parts of the old testament of course is the first 11 or 12 chapters of genesis do we have any kind of archaeological confirmation of any of those events? Well, you know, just take one of the most serious events of all of Genesis. I believe it's Genesis 19, where it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire, by God, because of their sexual deviancy and practices at the city. Their immorality was rampant, where it just so happens but I've participated in at least two to three seasons of digging at the biblical city of Sodom, and that's exactly what we're finding. We're finding a massive destruction layer, a high heat indicators which include melted pottery that had to be melted at some 6,000 degrees plus temperature. There is total destruction. There is bone scatter throughout the Sodom excavation that we have discovered, ash layers that are over three feet to four feet thick, total fiery destruction, and there is no doubt about it that the geographical indicators that put Sodom in the location that we're digging just northeast of the Dead Sea at Tal el Hammam is the actual biblical site of Sodom. So yes, much Archaeology has been coming out of the ground, confirming various issues within the book of Genesis. It is just simply amazing, Patrick. Yeah, there are two proposed sites of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
I think one is Babe Dra, which is more to the south. But you're saying this is the more likely site is Tel Hamam, which I believe is up north of that site. Correct. In fact, William F. Albright, the American archaeologist who uh, really pioneered excavation in Israel in the earlier years, thought that either Baba, you know, Baba Dra or that the city of Sodom was underneath the southern end of the Dead Sea. Well, we're finding that those locations in the south are much too early to be the actual Sodom and Gomorrah. They're some five, six hundred years too early uh, down in the south. But Tal al-Hamam in the north is geographically central to the geography of the Bible, which tells us that Sodom was located at the easternmost site of the Canaanite settlements, which means that it was across the Jordan River, the direction that Lot traveled and pitched his tent as far as Sodom, on the eastern side of what they call the Kikar. The Kikar is a Hebrew word. It means a circular disk. And Sodom was located on the eastern side of this circular disk just north of the Dead Sea. The Jordan River would go right in between this circular disk at the mouth of the Jordan. And there has been geographical marker one after another that are listed some 40 different markers that put Sodom right there in the northeast portion of the Dead Sea. Not in the sea, but just off the shores of it. Wow, fantastic. Well, you know, one of the most disputed things is the flood there in Genesis, you know, 6 through 9. But one of the things that we have discovered is there's actually other flood accounts there in ancient literature that we have discovered, isn't there? Yes, there are some two dozen accounts of a flood, a great flood, a worldwide flood, a huge flood. And these accounts come from outside the Hebrew and Christian traditions. For example, the Chinese have a flood account. The Algonquin Indians have a flood account. The Greeks have a flood account. The Hebrews have a flood account. The Mexicans have a flood account. And when we look at these different accounts, we find that there is a core common thread. Number one, there is a universal or a worldwide or a huge regional flood being mentioned. There was a boat that preserved a family, and then that family survived the flood. Now, there are different details that differ in there, but the core of the story is correct. It matches up perfectly, and that's what we'd expect. If there was a worldwide flood and that people experienced this, people would have documented it and told stories about it. And in some cases, these stories were embellished a little over time with their religious traditions and so forth. But for the most part, they preserve the core of the story. The Babylonians had a flood account. The Mesopotamians had a flood account. The Gilgamesh epic, for right. example, mm-hmm. from Mesopotamia. You have the Atrahasis epic. All these epics and, and documents from the ancient world chronicle that the gods were angry at man. Man was put through a flood, and this flood was survived by a family. And in some cases, these ancient stories said their figure that survived was made immortal, and others doesn't mention that. But what we do see is that the story is consistent throughout the ages. Yeah, and one of the most disputed arguments there in biblical history is the Mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Jesus calls them the book of Moses, but the majority of seminaries and colleges out there don't attribute the first five books to Moses. Do we have evidence that Moses did indeed can be a logical author of the first five books? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the whole idea that Moses was not the author of the first five books it came very late in biblical scholarship, and it was largely due to a shift in worldview, again, anti-supernatural presuppositions, different schools of thought emerged that put Moses at a either later date or had five different authors contributing to the first five books of the Bible. But what we're finding is the one who wrote the first five books had to be educated with Egyptian education, number one. We know that based on the kind of words he uses and the knowledge he employs. Number two, the person who wrote those first five books must have an intimate knowledge of Egyptian government and military. Not only that, he must know the flora and the fauna through the whole geographical area in which they traveled. This matches up perfectly with mosaic authorship. There's no reason to doubt that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Yes, and another disputed account is the Exodus. Many mm. doubt the Exodus or even the date of the Exodus. But what kind of archaeology do we have regarding the Exodus account? Well, the archaeological evidence for the Exodus account is really mounting. The only problem is some of these excavators don't link the evidence to the Exodus because they're looking in the wrong dating period. They think the Exodus happened in the Ramesside period when Pharaoh Ramses was ruling the day. But the evidence coming out of the ground from about 200 years earlier matches up very nicely with the Exodus and a Hebrew presence in Egypt. And it is fantastic when you look at these things. And I'm talking about things like there are Hebrew houses that have been built. There are Hebrew dwellings in the typical style of Canaanite fashion that are there. There are Hebrew tools, there are Hebrew clothing, there are Hebrew burials, there are Hebrew settlements in the area of Goshen. In fact, if you read the excavation manuals from Avaris printed by Manfred Betok, the head archaeologist there, you find that all these things that he's finding there are perfectly consistent with the early date of the Exodus happening in the mid-15th century B.C. I think the big problem, Patrick, is that they're just looking at the wrong date. And since they're not finding anything in this stratum of this late date, that they think the Exodus didn't happen. They're just looking at the wrong time period. Yeah, so who would the Pharaoh have been then during the time of the Exodus? Boy, that's a good question. There's all kinds of speculation. I would hate to speculate on that because I just I don't know, but there are all kinds of different ideas out there. I just hate to speculate, Patrick, on that. Yeah. But we do know the Bible says there was a pharaoh, and that pharaoh drowned. Yeah, so um, if if it wasn't Ramses, then, you know, Disneyland and Hollywood would have to redo their movies. And so uh, you just <laughs> ruined it for so many thousands of viewers there, those classic movies there with Charlton Heston and everything. Yes, yes, Cecil B. DeMille's and Charlton Heston <laughs> and the productions. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, then, what are some significant discoveries that have been made in New Testament archaeology? 
Wow, New Testament, we've also had success there, Patrick. There has been various finds. One of them I've already mentioned, the James Ossuary, that dates to the first century with Jesus' inscription, his name on it, along with his brother James and his father Joseph. Just an amazing, amazing find. And through a multiple-year court case, it has been vindicated. And there's no reason to doubt its authenticity. Yeah, I didn't hear about that. You know, all I heard was the critical scholars saying, no, this is probably not. It's a forgery of some sort. Right. And that was based on a mistaken notion that the box was authentic, but the inscription was a forgery. Well, all the experts, I mean, there were several dozen experts looking at this bone box, and there was not one of them that said it is a forgery they all kind of came to the conclusion that there's you know, no reason to doubt it, I can't be sure that it is a forgery, and so forth. And here's what the problem was. Within an inscription that's been in a cave for some 2,000 years or so, there is a process or a layering of microbial film over the box. It's called patina. Patina is a microbial film that fills all the pores of the box when it's in a cave for 2,000 years. And if there is patina in the inscription, then it would suggest that the inscription is authentic. But if there is no patina in the inscription, but there is patina on the box itself, per se, there is the idea that it is a forgery because the patina is not present. You know it's a recent carving. Well, what they found out was that the IAA, the authorities at the Israeli Antiquity Authority, who's in charge of artifacts, they scrubbed the box with detergent prior to analyzing it, and they found that a lot of the patina was missing from the inscription and the box. But unfortunately, they botched the the analysis because they scrubbed the box, not looking for the patina, but there was enough patina left after their scrubbing of detergents of the box that they can confirm that it is most likely an authentic inscription. So it was very, very heated debate for some five to six years. It finally came to a conclusion. The court case was held in Israel, and Oded Galan, the person who owned the box, was acquitted on all charges. He was not uh, charged with forgery after the conclusion of the case. He was vindicated, and the box still stands as a witness to, and the earliest witness to Jesus's family. Wow, fantastic. Now, not only do we find the ossuary of James, there's also a belief that we have found the ossuaries of Herod the Great and Caiaphas, the chief priest who sentenced Jesus to death. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we have discovered the family tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest, the very person that sentenced Jesus to death, he and his family have been discovered. In fact, there are two ornate ossuaries, bone boxes, that have been uncovered. In fact, one of them had the bones of about a 60 to 65-year-old man inside of it. And there was an inscription on the side with his family name on it. So we have no doubt that we have uh, the Caiaphas family uh, ossuaries, wow. and also Herod the Great, Ehud Netzer, a Hebrew archaeologist, excavated parts of Masada, the hilltop fortress down there near the Dead Sea in Israel, found Herod's wine jug with his name on the bottom of it. It said Herod, and it told him that he was, it, it said that he was the king, it was written in Latin, 
And that tells us that Herod imported his wine from Italy based on this Latin inscription on the bottom of his wine jug. Herod was a real person, and he was also a great architect, as we know from the buildings he left behind. Wow. Well, you know, to break off on another subject here, but I want to ask you about a millennia-long dispute. There's, you know, two proposed grave sites of Christ. You have the Garden Tomb and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Yes. Yeah, you have any opinion as to which one might be more logically the place where Christ was crucified and buried? Well, that's an interesting question, because the two sites of Christ's burial are functioning today. One is owned by an English group. That's the Garden Tomb. It was originally discovered next to Skull Hill or Golgotha or Calvary by Charles Gordon. That is a beautiful place to go and sit and enjoy a Bible reading or communion. It's in the middle of a garden, an ancient garden, and there is a tomb there that was venerated over time. The second spot is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is run by various religious groups there, and that is also claimed to be the site of Jesus' burial. Which one is the real site? Well, the short of the answer is we don't know. But we do know that both sites are outside the city gates, and both sites have good reason to believe that they are the actual sites. So I would recommend visiting both of them and doing a little research on both of them and people making up their own mind about it. And when we approach things like that where there's, you know, disputed sites, how do we go about, you know, researching this kind of stuff and, and coming to an accurate conclusion? Well, the first thing is you want to read your Bible and look at the markers or geographical descriptions or the details surrounding where he was buried. Once you do that, it's good to read what other people have said about both sites and see and ask the Lord to eliminate, illuminate your thinking and perhaps being okay with not making a decision at this point or being okay with making a decision. But I wouldn't make your decision based on how the sites are being used today. Just because the Garden Tomb right. by Golgotha is a very pleasant and peaceful site, very serenic, doesn't mean that that's the actual site, as opposed to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which has a very commercialized flavor to it and very religious with icons. doesn't mean that's not the site. We need to make sure that whatever we do, our evaluations are balanced and fair to come to our conclusions. Yes, fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Joseph Holden, president of Veritas Evangelical Seminary. Now, Joe, people who want more information on archaeology besides your book, what are some other great resources for them when they can investigate more in this whole arena of biblical archaeology? Well, Archaeology in the New Testament is a book by John McRae. That would be an excellent work for somebody uh, to pick up. Just an amazing book. And also, there's another one by Kenneth Kitchen, the Reliability of the Old Testament. That is an excellent book as well. Anything written by Dr. Stephen Collins is excellent, or John McRae, or John Currid. All these are excellent, excellent works. Fantastic. Any uh, magazines or journals you recommend? Yes, a, a good one for a popular level reading would be the Biblical Archaeology Review. They have a mixture of moderate and conservative and and a few liberal writers are, are there as well. But it gives you a good idea of the, and what I think is mostly a fair presentation of the artifacts 
and the ideas that are floating around out there relating to archaeology in the Bible. That's Biblical Archaeology Review. Yes. All right. Now, you're president of Veritas Evangelical Seminary. It's a fairly new seminary out there in southern Los Angeles. Tell us about Veritas. Well, Veritas Seminary was founded by Dr. Norman Geisler and myself nearly 10 years ago as a seminary that we could train men and women to be equipped in defending the faith and sharing the gospel message worldwide. And that's what we've done for the last 10 years. We're fully accredited. We have several degree programs, master's degrees. We're also going to add new programs in archaeology and biblical history within the next six months to a year. It is going to be a phenomenal addition because we have a dig to dig at in the Middle East of a biblical city, and it will all be led by Dr. Stephen Collins, the director of the program and the excavation. So we're excited about this endeavor. And also, if people want to know more about the seminary, they can go to ves.edu. That's ves.edu. Or call us, 951-966-8500. Yes, and a lot of the courses you can take online. So for those of us living in Hawaii or other areas of the Pacific, you can get a degree online and not have to pick up your family and move there to California, although California is a great place. A lot of us want to be there, but you can take a lot of those courses. It's a very high-tech curriculum online, isn't it? Yes, our distance learning program, you can fulfill all your degrees through distance learning without residency requirement. So we have professors here to help each student to work through their degree programs. And what the great thing is, we have a low student-to-teacher ratio which provides much attention to each individual need. And we're, we're thankful to the Lord for that. And we just pray for the students that he's called out that want to go deeper, that want to take a step in being equipped to defend the faith and share the faith with great effectiveness. Veritas Evangelical Seminary is the place to be. Yeah, you know, it's a great seminary, and there's a great lineup of faculty there at Veritas as well. Tell us about uh, the lineup you got there. Well, we are blessed to have Dr. Norman Geisler as the head of our faculty, and we have Dr. Miguel Indara, who, who did his Ph.D. at St. Louis University in natural law. He's our academic dean. Dr. Ron Rhodes, who is a cult and new religions specialist. Dr. William Nix, who is historical theologian, unparalleled, and just a fine researcher and publisher of, of books, a former editor himself. We also have David Miller and Dr. Forrest Weiland, and uh, just an amazing group of scholars. Dr. H. Wayne House, who is a prolific writer on various things from law and theology, apologetics and cults and new religions. Just a fantastic, fantastic lineup. We're so blessed to have these men. Yes, it's a fantastic school. A lot of those scholars you heard Joe Holden mention have been here on Evidence and Answers, and you can listen to my interviews with these men as well. Just a fine lineup of scholars there at a fully accredited evangelical seminary where you're going to be taught not only Bible and theology, but also the defense of the Christian faith, apologetics. There weren't seminaries like that when I was going to seminary. I had to chase Dr. Geisler all around the country and finally, <laughs> you know, I went to Dallas for Dr. Norman Geisler. You know, I left beautiful Hawaii for Dallas to study under Norman Geisler there in Dallas. And the year I got there is the year he left. And so, oh. 
yes, yeah, so I didn't get apologized. I had to chase him down all the way in North Carolina where I finally was able to get courses under him. But those of you from Hawaii and the Pacific, you don't have to go all the way to North Carolina now. You can go right there to beautiful Southern California, to Southern Los Angeles and study there at Veritas or do their courses right online. Fantastic school, fantastic curriculum, and fantastic professors there teaching you some of the best in Bible, theology, and apologetics. So you've been listening to our interview with Joseph Holden, president of Veritas Evangelical Seminary, and his new book that I encourage you to get that he co-authored with Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the great apologists of our time, forwarded there by Dr. Walter Kaiser, perhaps one of the foremost Old Testament scholars in the world today. It's called The Popular Handbook of Archaeology and the Bible. So, Joe, uh, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, we're so thrilled to be with you, and we are thrilled with what you're do doing with Evidence and Answers. Patrick, we, we support you, and, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Our time has come to a close. We thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and purchase Pat's products, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh,